We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, please open to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we should have one in the seat back in front of you. If not right in front of you, to your left, to your right, somewhere close by. Mark chapter 6. Faith carries with it great power. Faith carries with it great power. Faith is said to move mountains in the Bible. As we know from the prophet Elijah, faith can bring down fire from heaven. Faith is a mighty force in the scriptures. We witnessed this in the past few weeks through the the great faith of Jairus, the desperate daddy who cast his feet, uh, cast himself at the feet of Jesus, pleading for his daughter's life. We also saw this last week uh, by the great faith of this woman with this discharge of blood for 12 years. Both exercised great faith in Jesus. And as a result, both experienced his limitless, matchless power. Faith is a powerful force. But so is unbelief. Unbelief is what brought about the fall in the Garden of Eden. Unbelief is what resulted in the flood. It resulted in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And ultimately it was Judas's eternal demise. Unbelief is a dangerous and yes, powerful thing. And while the Bible has much to say regarding faith and belief... It has just as much to say regarding the dangerous and deadly reality of unbelief. John 3.16, a famous verse says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We like the first half of this verse, but rarely do we go ahead and finish the rest of that verse. Both belief and unbelief carry with them great power. One unlocking the treasures of heaven through salvation in Christ. And the other can plunge a person into eternal separation from God. And Jesus experienced both in his ministry great faith and shocking unbelief. Now throughout the Gospels, uh, people were constantly amazed with Jesus. Both His teaching and His miracles astonished many. But there's only two places in the Bible where it speaks of Jesus being astonished or amazed. One is found in the story recorded in both Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is said to be amazed or astonished at the faith of the centurion. But the second is in our text this morning. In verse 6 we read that, And he, Jesus, marveled, shocked, was amazed because of their unbelief, the text says. primary theme we have been considering through our study of Mark is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Is a question we've been considering. But a second important theme in Mark rises to the surface this morning. We've hinted at it. But it really rises to the surface this morning. It's the theme of discipleship. 
As we will see, a, a shift takes place in our text this morning. Jesus is actually going to send out the disciples to preach His gospel message without Him. This will eventually become their full-time calling as apostles. And while they've witnessed great faith towards their Savior, this morning they're going to be confronted with this unbelief, which is going to be both shocking and very, very powerful. So Jesus will respond to this. But He does so, I think, not in a way that we would think. After being amazed by the the unbelief of His hometown in Nazareth, Jesus simply moves on, continues preaching, and then He sends out the disciples to do the same. We need to remember that Jesus' mission was always twofold. First, primarily, to accomplish our salvation upon the cross. But secondly, to establish a group of people, His disciples, to spread His kingdom message to the end of the earth. So this morning I have a main point for you. I want you to write down. Here it is. In the face of shocking unbelief, Jesus sends us out as His ambassadors to proclaim His message of the kingdom. In the face of shocking unbelief, Jesus sends us out as His ambassadors to proclaim His message of the kingdom. Mark chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 13. And He went away from there and came to His hometown and His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could not do no, do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on, put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed, oil, anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Lord, we, we pause again. We know nothing of you in terms of redemptive history and how we might be saved apart from your word. Lord, help us this morning to think deeply about the truth of what you're saying to us. Lord, let us honor your word. Let us hear your word. Let us rightly respond to your word. For the sake of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. So a very simple kind of outline this morning. Just going to have two kind of headings. We'll look at this shocking unbelief in 1 through 6. And then we're going to look at Jesus' response in 7 through 13. We might, and we're going to try to call some principles for ministry there. 
So first, shocking unbelief in verses 1 through 6. So this morning, Jesus makes his second visit to his hometown of Nazareth. He's just left the area around the Sea of Galilee, perhaps Capernaum, and now heads approximately 20 miles southwest to Nazareth. His first visit hadn't gone very well, which you can read about in Luke chapter 4. After teaching in the synagogue, in Luke chapter 4, verse 29, we read, And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. In response to his teaching, they attempted to kill Jesus. It's safe to say he didn't experience the best homecoming his first visit. But now he's back for a second time. We see this in verse 1. Nazareth was a, a very small and rather insignificant town with, we have different guesstimations, but probably somewhere between 250 and 500 people. Not once is it mentioned in the entire Old Testament. It was a town where everyone knew everyone. And no wonder Nathaniel is recorded as saying in John chapter 1, verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus is home. And this time his disciples are with him, which is going to prove to be especially instructive later on in our text. As Jesus does what he always does, though, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins teaching the word of God. And the end of verse 2 says, many who heard were astonished or amazed, maybe you have. They were amazed. They were overwhelmed. They were struck by what they were hearing. Yet this amazement is not altogether positive. It really turns to skepticism and ridicule. As we see through this series of questions, they fire off in verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judah, Judas and Simon? Are not... And are not his sisters here with us? These questions are slights. They're digs or insults. They question first his education. They ask, where did he get this wisdom from? They know he didn't have any classical training, no rabbinical training. He was a carpenter. He was a simple man with rough hands. No scholar, no PhD. Where did he learn this stuff from? Then they question his power. Now it's important that we need to take note here how they don't, they don't try to deny what Jesus says or what he does. It's not an issue of proof for them. Jesus' teaching and power was undeniable. They don't doubt it because they can't doubt it. They simply question its origin. And where the Pharisees, as we saw this earlier, accused Jesus' power of coming straight from Satan, they don't go that far. They just kind of leave it open-ended. If it's not from God, then who? They don't know. As we've already seen, it's important to know how Jesus' teaching and miracles do not automatically produce faith. We've seen that. It's important to remember. Many witnessed the same events, and they heard the same teaching, but come to very differing conclusions. It's like the parable of the soils, right? Some fall on good ground, and some falls on rocky ground. But the insults actually go further. Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Now it's a very uncommon way to address someone 
by their mother's name in this culture in this time. In other words, it's typically we always see it son of the father's name. Ask the question, why do they do this? Well, perhaps one interpretation could be that Joseph has already died. That's one way to look at it. But I think more likely we see here a cheap shot at what they understand is a maybe scandal going around Jesus' birth. Jesus was virgin born, conceived by the Holy Spirit before Mary and Joseph were officially married. And we know through Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees that rumor had gotten out and were swirling that Jesus was illegitimate child. Possibly his mom was fast and loose. Their point is clear. Jesus is a common man. He cannot be the Messiah. We know what he's all about. He doesn't fit our model of Messiah. Jesus was just too ordinary, too commonplace for them to accept his true divine identity. They already knew what they believed the Messiah was going to look like and act like. And it sure wasn't this guy. Not from Nazareth, not a carpenter, and definitely not Mary's boy. So the text says at the end of verse 3, they took offense at him. They were offended by him. The word literally means they were scandalized by all the talk and hype concerning Jesus. Jesus offended their sensibilities. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they would not believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. It was too scandalous for them. So in verse 4, Jesus aligns himself with the prophets of old when he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own hometown, his own household. Jesus meets the same fate as the prophets who go before him. He's rejected. They knew Jesus, but because they could not explain him, they reject him in unbelief. Then we read in verse 5. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And over the past few weeks, Mark has been setting before us evidence over and over again of Jesus' power, kind of building. Jesus is the one with limitless, matchless power. He, he's the all-powerful Son of God, no doubt. He calmed the sea. He exercised the demonic spirit. And then last week, He breathed life into the very face of death. Jesus possesses unlimited power because Jesus is God Himself. But there's one thing which stands in the way of Jesus executing His power. Unbelief here. Let me be clear now. Jesus cannot execute His power here because Jesus will not execute His power in the face of blatant unbelief. The parallel account in Mark in Matthew 13:58 says it this way, and he did not do many mighty works there because of this unbelief. Jesus was constrained morally and spiritually not to reveal his power in such an environment of rejection and unbelief. It's not that Jesus lacks the ability here. He lacks the will here. One author helpfully helps us here. He says this, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful He was 
but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. Due to their unbelief, Jesus chose not to execute any public display of power here. He only lays his hands quietly on a few sick people and heals them. I think we need to pause here and recognize something important. As we bring these texts from last week and this week together. If we come to Jesus like Jairus and the woman with the discharge of blood in faith, He will receive us and we will receive His grace, His power, and His kindness. That's clear. But if we reject Him in unbelief, we can provide an environment where Jesus not only does not do for us what He does for others, we also might send Him on His way in search of those who listen to His gospel message and follow Him in obedience. Verse 6 says, And He marveled because of their unbelievers and His unbelief, and He went about among the villages teaching. Both Jesus and, the, and His hometown are dumbfounded by each other. Nazareth is amazed and scandalized by Jesus, and Jesus is amazed by Nazareth's unbelief in the face of so much overwhelming evidence. So Jesus simply moves on and teaches somewhere else. Now Mark has deliberately been stacking these differing narratives to make a point, I think. As we said, last week we considered the faith of Jairus and this poor outcast woman with a discharge of blood. Their faith led them to experience Jesus' power and come to know Him on a much deeper level, come to realize just who Jesus was. But here we find just the opposite. Those who actually know Jesus, they know His birth, they know His life, they know His family, they know His miraculous power and His divine wisdom, and yet they deny Him in unbelief. Therefore, his person and his work is concealed to them. And he leaves. I'm going to come back to where I started this morning. Unbelief is a, is a shocking, powerful, and a dangerous thing. And unbelief has nothing to do with ignorance. We need to be clear on that. Or a lack of knowledge. Unbelief is an active response. It's an it's an actively rejecting what is clear and plain about the person of Christ. You heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. I think we find it here. This text presents a, a warning to us who are familiar with Christ. Those in Nazareth knew Jesus, they thought. They were familiar with Him. They were familiar with Him to the point He ceased to amaze them. They were familiar with Him to the point they were unwilling to bow before Him as Lord. He was common to them. So they missed Him. And I think we too must be careful that we don't get so close and so familiar with the Gospel that it no longer moves us. There's a danger with allowing our familiarity with Christ, our familiarity with the Bible, and our familiarity with the Gospel, which can rob us of our wonder and amazement of Jesus. 
we must always fight against our faith becoming passive and casual. We must be honest. Our hearts are prone to wonder. Familiarity can lead us to a lack of faith and passion for Jesus. And in its strongest sense, it can lead to a state of unbelief. I was thinking this week, as I was writing this sermon, thinking back, we can be so familiar with the riches of Christ that they don't amaze us. They don't move us sometimes. I can remember when I, I went to a trip in Haiti and was able to preach to about 50 Haitian pastors. Most of them had Bibles that were passed down to them. Most of them had tape on their Bibles, patching pages together. Most of them led churches that met under tin roofs or tarps. And the simplest, most basic truths about Christ generated great faith and emotion. These brothers would stop and sing in the middle of a simple text to expose the truths and the riches of Christ. Let me ask you this morning. I know this comes at you the way it comes at me. That's not me enough. And we need to be honest about that. Our familiarity with having the blessings that we have of gathering and worshiping and singing the riches of Christ, if we're not careful, can well up contempt in our heart. And what does unbelief look like for the Christian? What does wandering look like for the Christian? Staggering as we read this morning for the Christian. Well, we know from this text it at least looks like questioning Jesus rather than following Jesus. Instead of trusting His person and responding in obedience, we often stand back and question and refuse to follow Him. Is this really what you're calling me to? Is this really what you're asking of my family and me? We put Jesus in a place where He should not be because He's Lord. I just want to say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're coming. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me lovingly let you hear the warning from this text as well. Because proximity to the things of God is no substitute for faith in God. Proximity to the gospel is not faith in the gospel. In fact, your proximity to Christ can be a dangerous thing unless you submit to Christ. It's a dangerous thing to come in here week after week and hear the the truths of the gospel, to hear the riches of Christ and what He has done for us on the cross and then walk away each week indifferent. Let it have no effect on your life. And leave you in unbelief. It's critically important that all of us this morning, Christian and non-Christian, that we see Jesus as who He truly is. As He is revealed to us in the Scripture, not as we might hope, not as we might wish, and not as we might want Him to be. It's not our call to make. He's Lord. We ought to accept Him by faith. Now we come in verse 7 to a shift, a rather shift in the text. We can almost see these two texts as separate from each other. I think in one sense they are, but held together, I think they make a good point. The disciples have mostly played a a background row up until this point. They now get a kind of a front row seat here in the narrative. Jesus is going to send them out into the world without him on a somewhat, maybe we would call it an internship mission. 
where they will no doubt experience both faith and unbelief as Jesus did. And in verses 7 through 13, we find the description of the disciples being sent out into an unbelieving world to advance his kingdom work. Again, Jesus' mission was twofold. Accomplish salvation upon the cross, primary, yes. But he was also committed to raising up a group of people to advance his mission when he's gone, which would extend down to us. That's what we see here. So we must be careful here as we read this not to absolutize this passage. In other words, we don't read this passage as a straightforward prescription for what we are to do. We always must make decisions in the Bible when it's describing something and prescribing something. Some have read this as a prescription. There's a movement, I was reading about it online, that goes out with robes and sandals two by two and preaches the gospel with two tunics. I think they're missing the point. We find a description here of Jesus' instruction to his disciples who would eventually become his apostles in a very specific moment in redemptive history which provides us principles for our ministry in our world today. So that's what I want to speak about in the rest of this text. Principles for ministering in an unbelieving world. So in verses 7 through 13, we start with something of a, I see it, as a huddle. Disciples are huddled up and Coach Jesus sends them out two by two with specific instructions to follow. This was a common practice to send people in pairs. In accordance to Old Testament law, two were required for a valid witness. And this is also just safe and more practical, right, to have someone with you. I also tend to think that Jesus probably looked out and saw Peter and thought, somebody probably should go with him. He's going to mess things up. That's just me, though. So Jesus sends them out two by two with instructions by which we can draw, I think, at least five principles to consider this morning. We'll walk through these. So first, we are to go in the authority of Christ. Read in verse 7. Look at it. And He called the twelve and began to send them out. This idea of send them out is the root of the word apostle itself, the sent ones. He began them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus gave them pairs. Jesus gave the pairs his authority, the right and the power over demons, over unclean spirits. And this is a new stage in the disciples' ministry. They are delegated with the very authority of, of Jesus. The power and authority expressed by Jesus over the past few weeks is now dele- de- delegated common the twelve were authorized and appointed representatives they were set out as extensions of the king of king jesus in other words they were to be official representatives of jesus himself and how did they receive this they had been called by christ they had spent time with christ their authority was derived from the presence and power of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul extends something of this to us. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Paul deems us as ambassadors, official representatives of King Jesus on this earth. And our authority to do so is derived from Christ as well. There is no institution in the world that can make you a minister of the gospel. 
That goes for people who have multiple PhDs. That goes for any of you who maybe struggle reading and writing. There is no institution in the world that can make you a minister of the gospel. They can train you, provide you certain credentials, maybe give you some degrees, but the only basis upon which you may ever go for Christ is because you have been called by Him. And you have been united with Him in salvation. It is the the presence of Christ. Someone goes out with the authority of Christ to proclaim the word of Christ and to advance the kingdom of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. We live and operate under His authority on heaven, in heaven, as it is on earth. And because of this, we secondly are to go dependent upon Christ. Jesus sent the disciples out under the specific instructions of taking no excess, which could impede the mission. Verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. They were to, to travel light, to take only what was essential. Simplicity is the, the call here. And I think because simplicity demands dependency. They were to go out completely dependent upon Christ, which requires a level of simplicity in our lives. And look, let's be honest, this is a hard one for us. Both individually and as a church. We live in a culture all about accumulating and having things. If you don't believe me, go home and look at your garage. Things actually provide identity in our culture, right? You say who you are based upon what? What you have. Now, I'm not going to try to speak into this directly to you and give specifics here. You're smart people. You can read the Bible. Let's just be honest. If Christ called you today to pick up and move for the sake of the gospel, how hard would it be for you? Is your life simple enough that you can make a a major decision like that for the Lord? Or would all the clutter, all the excess, all the stuff make it difficult, if not nearly impossible, for you to take up the simple commands of Christ? As a church, the same goes for us. It's easy for us to become bloated with activities, with programs, with ministries, none bad, that have no leave us no time to actually meet our neighbor, have them over for dinner and share the gospel. To actually follow and serve Christ. Simplicity is the call here. Interestingly, the, the four items required of the disciples, I haven't did a lot of study here, but looking at it, maybe you go back and do that on your own. But the four items required of the disciples are identical to what God called the Israelites to take on their flight from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. You should go think about that. Maybe something new is happening here with the disciples. But this emphasis is clear, at least on the fact that their faith is to be in God's provision for what they will need. Just as the children of Israel had to to fully rely upon the Lord for their deliverance, the disciples and you and I are to be equally reliant upon the Lord, dependent upon Christ. One writer helps here. He says this, True service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material 
shortfalls and unanswered questions. Speaking of the disciples, they must trust Him alone who sends them. In other words, little provision requires great faith in God to meet our needs. Simplicity demands dependency. So we're to go possessing dependency on Christ. We're also to go content in Christ. After instructing them on what to take, Jesus provides instruction as to where they are to stay and how to respond to hospitality. Verse 10 says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In this time period, common hospitality required one opening their home for traveling teachers. So the instruction is that when you receive, when someone is receptive and they welcome you into their home, stay there and don't spend your time trying to get an upgrade. You find a spot at a Motel 6, be content. Don't go about maneuvering and trying to upgrade to the Hyatt. Show integrity. Demonstrate your contentment in Christ. That's the principle. Be content in whatever situation you find yourself in. For this speaks to the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel in our lives. Next, go expecting to be received like Christ. Here's where the disciples witnessing Jesus' rejection in Nazareth proves to be important. Verse 11 makes clear the disciples are to expect to be received as Christ was. Yes, some will exercise great faith, which will amaze them. But some will respond in unbelief and rejection. It says, it said, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against you. What is this all about? I think we have here what Kent Hughes calls a, a merciful prophetic act. The shaking off the dust from one's feet symbolized a warning regarding what had been rejected. The principle is rather straightforward. There will be times when you have to honestly and brokenheartedly warn others of the danger of rejecting Christ and the judgment they will experience. I was... It may hurt, but it's actually loving and necessary. I was, I was called by a, a newspaper recently who wanted to give us a, a spot as a new church. They have a section in their newspaper here that they allow new businesses, new churches, things like that to have a little write-up. So he's asking me a bunch of questions, and he's asking me about Christ and what I think about faith and salvation in Him. And he, Obviously, you can tell he does this a lot with a lot of different religious organizations and churches and and he got to the end of it and he said, so if I'm clear, you're saying that there is no salvation outside of Christ. And I paused like that for a minute and I said, you are correct. But I think that's a loving thing to tell people that. And I said, there's no salvation outside of Christ because there's no other faith that deals with the real problem of humanity like Christ does. The problem of sin. So they would talk about Christ being our sin bearer and the one who died in our place. But there's times when we're going to have to be straightforward with people as an act of love and say the truth. Next, we go proclaiming Christ and doing the work of the kingdom. These last two verses, verses function, I think, as a summary verse for the disciples' instructions and on our mission. We shouldn't be surprised here because this mirrors the mission of Jesus. So they went out and they proclaimed that 
people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The same message of John the Baptist, the same message of Jesus, which calls for repentance and faith in Christ. And with the authority and the unique apostolic enablement, they cast out demons. Literally, it says here, demons many they cast out. And they healed many of sickness. Disciples were sent out to preach this message of the kingdom. Repentance and faith. They were given unique powers to authenticate this message. This is no different than Jesus. Jesus, His miracles were meant to demonstrate, to authenticate His message. We hear this phrase here in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Signs and wonders were given to authenticate Jesus, the message of the kingdom, and the disciples, the apostles. Now our calling as individuals and as a church is to proclaim this same message of the kingdom of Christ. And as we see here at the center of this message is this issue of repentance. The very first words of Jesus recorded in this gospel. Chapter 1 verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Church, we've been called, we've been empowered, and yes, we've been commissioned to preach this same message of the kingdom. We exist, as we say here, to glorify God by declaring, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. It's our mission at the hill. And the reality is this cannot take place without the call to repentance. We're sinners. We're in desperate need of God's forgiveness, which we find in the gospel. That God sent His Son to die the death we deserve for our sins upon the cross. We receive this forgiveness of sin by repentance and faith in Christ alone. We must repent and believe the gospel. Now, repentance is one of those topics which isn't very popular. And it's one of those topics that more and more people are trying to not preach on. But any presentation of Jesus void of repentance is not the gospel. Because without repentance there is no salvation. Because without repentance, there is no admittance of sin and an admittance of the need of God's grace. Repentance is the only pathway to Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled, visibly reformed. He goes on to give six ingredients necessary for repentance. I'll read them quickly to you. Number one, sight of sin. We must recognize we're sinners. Two, sorrow of sin. We must see our sin before a holy God. Three, confession of sin. Four, a shame of sin. Sin should cause a holy embarrassment. Five, a hatred of sin. And six, a turning from sin. Or to turn from Christ, which produces, as he says, visible outward reform. It produces something. 
In church, we have a calling. We have been called to be sent. I, there's a lot of beautiful things about being a pastor of a church, but a really, really cool experience I had uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, someone's daughter left their Bible in our church, a little pink Bible on one of the rows. And I, I uh, opened it up to look for the name, right? And I opened it up and I noticed that this little girl, I thought it was, it was a pink Bible, so I figured it was a little girl, had a lot of quotes in the front of the Bible. And one of the quotes said, God never calls anyone he does not send, Pastor Jimmy. I thought, wow, if we could just get what this little girl's getting. It was a quote from one of my sermons. What a powerful thing. But it's the truth of the gospel that God calls no one he does not send. And we're the church of Jesus Christ, therefore we have been sent. And we've been sent into a world where we are sure to experience shocking unbelief sometimes. Belief in our unbelief in our own hearts and unbelief in the world. Just as Jesus did. But we must remember we are ambassadors for Christ. We are official representatives of His kingdom here on earth. He has empowered us to proclaim His message of the gospel of the kingdom. In the face of shocking unbelief, Jesus sends us out as his ambassadors to proclaim his message of the kingdom. That's what we're talking about this morning. And we're going to move to the taking the supper in just a minute. But before we do, I'm going to pray. But we, we sang about, we saw in the first half of this text, this idea of this, yes, shocking, rejecting unbelief. A belief that must be overcome for you to become a Christian. Well, you see Jesus truly for who He truly is. You see yourself truly as you are as a sinner. And you place faith in Him. The supper this morning, if that's you this morning, you're still wrestling with the question of who is Jesus and do I want to become a, a Christian, the supper this morning is not for you. Not because we don't love you. Because we're uniting around the body and blood of Christ. So if you're not a Christian this morning, let the elements pass by. But we don't ask you to check out. Consider the text this morning. Consider your walk with the Lord this morning. And what that means for you. If you are a believer, we do invite you this morning. But I want to invite you this morning by thinking back over our text. In two ways. Thinking back over our text and the idea that it's not just the unbeliever that struggles with unbelief. We are prone to wonder. Our hearts are often cold. How do we overcome that? We overcome the, the, the strength of our unbelief by overcoming it with a, a greater strength in Christ, a greater love for Christ. And how do we do that? We consider again the gospel. We consider again the riches of Christ, His body and His blood. We consider again that we do not deserve what He's given us by His grace. And we celebrate the fact that He offers us freely in Christ. And this morning, if you are hanging in unbelief and you see that, repent. The Gospel is here for you. But I also want us to think this morning, not just inwardly when we take the supper, 
I want us to think outwardly as we take this up. Christ died to redeem us, but to call us, to empower us, and to send us. If you're part of the Hill Church, you're in this community because Christ has called you into this community. And you're in this community because Christ has empowered you in this community. And you're in this community because Christ has sent you into this community. And we want to be faithful with the riches of the gospel that's been expressed to us. That we would share those in a tangible way with our community around us. So I'm going to pray and then Pastor Sam's going to come up and lead us in the supper. Father, we... We pause again, we consider... We consider our hearts this morning. We consider uh, the reality that we're often cold. That, Lord, we often come into church and it's a rhythm, it's a routine. We gather with the people of God, we sing the truths of the gospel, we hear the preaching of your word, and oftentimes it's, if we're honest, something we have to just do and move on our day. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, that we who have experienced the truth of who you are get to walk in a real relationship with you. So, Lord, this morning, give us new affections for you. Give us clean hearts. Lord, give us a, a spirit of, Lord, of love, of grace, of gratitude for the riches of what you've done for us in Christ. Help us to look intently upon the cross and to see who you are. And Lord, let us hear this morning the call of the gospel that we're ambassadors for Christ and we're sent out into this world. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.